Well, good morning, Bethel Church. Aren't you glad you're not camping? You know what I mean? Some people are in a tent somewhere, cold and wet. Sorry. And we're here together. Not to make them feel bad or anything, but... Uh, hey, listen, happy 4th of July to you. And uh, even though it's a couple days early, what am I? What is today, the second? So I'm only one day early. That's not bad. I have no idea what day it is, but... Um, it is Sunday. Yeah, you guys are smart this morning. All right. <laughs> Let's pray. And uh, I want to pray specifically this morning for our nation, our leaders, and uh, the leadership that we need from Almighty God. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this chance to be together as the people of God in this warm, dry place and uh, to, to, to together declare your praises and to have the revealed truth of you in your scriptures proclaimed among us. We rejoice in that. We rejoice in a God who is worthy of being worshipped. We rejoice in a God who is not too far off. Though you are high and lifted up, you have come low to save. We rejoice. Uh, Lord, we pray right now for um, our nation. Uh, It is not the chosen nation, We are nothing special in this world. We are but one of many. But we do long, Lord, that our nation would fear you. We long that our people would live in peace and harmony under the goodness of God that is available to them if they would know it. I pray, Lord, that our people would turn their hearts to you. I pray, Lord, that our leaders would turn their hearts to you. I pray that they would govern wisely, God, uh, nationally and locally. Uh, We look around and we see anemic leadership and godless leadership and we repent and we regret and we long for something better. Lord, whether you answer that prayer here uh, in this day, in our lifetime, uh, in the coming uh, weeks, months, and years, we don't know. But our hope is not here. Our hope is in the kingdom to come. And we rejoice in knowing we have a God who is a just and loving, benevolent ruler, and you are king of all. So today, Lord, we pray for these things. Um, We thank you for the freedoms that we have had, and we ask that you would preserve the religious liberties of our land, uh, that more and more people might know you. If that is not your will, Lord, give us courage for what else might be. We turn to you now, into your word. We ask that you would teach us and that we would listen well to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, every now and then, um, I get into conversations, as I'm sure you do as well, uh, with somebody who maybe doesn't share uh, my faith, my religious convictions. And, uh, and sometimes they'll find out that I'm, I'm a Christian or a pastor or whatever, and in talking to me, they might at least want to sound like they do. And uh, if you had this kind of thing happen to you where you, you kind of know the person you're talking to is not necessarily cut from the same cloth or has the same set of beliefs, but they're going to put up a good pretending fight, you know what I mean? And uh, they'll start changing their uh, vocabulary carefully, uh, and, and it just becomes sort of clumsy and awkward and very apparent because, you know, spiritual talk is maybe not their first language, if you know what I mean. And, uh, and the harder they try, the more conspicuous uh, it becomes. And sometimes, you know, it's not just that they get the theology wrong or whatever. They can actually say things that are somewhat offensive, right? Uh, 
And we might call these verbal gaffes a spiritual faux pas. That's the title of the message this morning, a spiritual faux pas. Uh, I had a conversation um, a couple of years ago. I was at a school function with one of the kids, and I was sitting across the table from this woman, and she found out I was a pastor, and she was so excited to tell me about a book that she was reading that talked about the womanhood of God, and she thought I would really like it. I thought, well, you know. Um, I think one of the other phrases that always triggers me is um, the phrase, we're all God's children. You hear this one? And I, and I think, I, I know what they're trying to say. We're all special. The Lord loves us all. Okay, that's maybe the best of it. But all God's children seems to give the impression that we're all okay. And the reality is we're not all okay. And we're all sinners. And we all need a Savior. And it's through faith in Jesus and his sacrificial death for us that we become adopted as children of God and become part of his family. We're adopted in. We become sons and daughters of God Most High and brothers and sisters in Christ to one another. Uh, we're not all okay. We need the cross to be okay. And uh, so all God's children is sometimes a little tough for me. Uh, just, uh, I think it was Friday, I was having dinner here in town at a local restaurant. And I was sitting next to a guy and it had been a busy day. It's normally my day off. I had worked through most of it and was still finishing up my sermon. So you know you're in for something that could be a little shaky this morning, you know. I had my books with me and my computer and I was studying and a fellow leaned over and said, are you a student? And I, so here was an opportunity, right? Keep working on the sermon or start preaching to someone who needs it, right? So I took the moment to talk to him and, and uh, you know, I told him that, well, actually, I'm a pastor and I'm working on my sermon right now over dinner. And, and uh, we got to talk about it a little bit and he goes, oh, that's good. Yeah, I need a little more God in my life. And I thought, okay, well, uh, have some grace for that, but, you know. Um, But here we find in chapter 4 in the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar making a similar spiritual faux pas with a statement that he makes. We see it in chapter 4 verse 9 where he says to Daniel, who here is called by his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, the one that was assigned to him after exile. He says, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. So spirit of the holy gods. Okay, so clearly King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't yet have an orthodox view of God or of Daniel's God. He's clearly still on the outside looking in. Even though he's trying to be affirming and show support uh, to Daniel and to Daniel's faith and to Daniel's God. uh, His own language betrays that once again he's not yet on the inside. He doesn't have a saving knowledge, a saving faith of God Most High. Even with all of the elaborate expressions that we've seen in the chapters leading up to this one, Nebuchadnezzar is still on the outside looking in. He has knowledge, but he does not have faith. He knows of Daniel's God. He does not know Daniel's God as he is. And one of the shortcomings in King Nebuchadnezzar's belief system has been that he does not yet recognize that there is only one true and living God, what we might call the supremacy or the sovereignty of God. But the incident that we're going to read this morning is going to rectify that for him. And so the first point you'll see uh, here is this, that our story begins at the end of all places. Uh, In other words, if you'll look at the first three verses here as it starts off, you'll notice that the speaker in the story has changed. This story is no longer told from the perspective of Daniel or from the perspective of uh, an omniscient narrator 
But this story is told to us by none other than King Nebuchadnezzar himself. In other words, we get to hear the testimony, what I would call the testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar. We get to hear a first-hand account of what I would say is his own conversion. I will offer this caveat. Uh, The scholars on the subject of whether or not Nebuchadnezzar really becomes a God-fearer in this incident is is pretty well split, almost 50-50, at least by the resources that I have checked. Uh, But I would say this. Um, It seems pretty genuine to me. And here's a couple of reasons why. Number one, I seriously doubt that Daniel would have given Nebuchadnezzar space in his book to write such a thing if it was known that he was not yet a a, a God-fearer, a worshiper of Yahweh. So I think that on its own kind of probably clinches it for me. But if I were to press it even a little bit further, I would say this. Um, if, this is, if this incident that we're about to read here is, is something short of a true conversion, then the passage that we're reading here would represent the only chapter of all of Scripture composed by a non-believer. And I have a little difficulty with that as well. So uh, I think that distinction alone goes a long way to making it the fact, or the most likely fact, uh, that King Nebuchadnezzar has had a true-to-life conversion here. And I will be teaching this passage uh, from that perspective. Daniel 4.1 it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, you may, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Well, the language here, Sounds pretty legitimate. Sounds pretty genuine. This, and this is one of the chief reasons why I think that a conversion has in fact taken place. And that is because King Nebuchadnezzar is now willing to recognize that there is one true and living God referring to him as God Most High. The Most High God. And we learn from this too. A core matter of faith. A core matter of faith for King Nebuchadnezzar, for anyone, is recognizing the sovereignty of God. Uh, This is something that any believer must acknowledge. It was especially important for King Nebuchadnezzar because it was an issue on which he routinely stumbled in the chapters preceding this. Uh, We know King Nebuchadnezzar had already been given dreams from the Lord. Uh, They had been interpreted by Daniel. And afterward, he praised Daniel and he affirmed the glory of his God and all of these things. But as we saw last week, his pride and his self-preserving tendency still caused him to erect an image to be worshipped. And a command that he had given to all to bow to it. And so even while Nebuchadnezzar had made great boasts, even great boasts about God, Daniel's God, his actions have shown up to this point that something less than genuine faith has been here. And this is understandable because people do not come easily to faith. You find that in your life? In fact, I'm very suspect of quick conversions. I want to say, do you know what you're giving yourself to? Do you know what you're affirming? Because it demands all of you. Cheap grace usually leads to quick confessions. But real, true, and lasting statements of faith usually come over time through struggle. I love what uh, St. Augustine has said because the sovereignty of God, and to affirm that, that really threatens our pride, the pride of humanity, doesn't it? Augustine says it this way, God being God, offends human pride. 
God being God offends human pride. In other words, if God is running the universe and he has first claim in your life, then guess who isn't running the universe? <laughs> and the, the idea that we are not God is uh, actually tougher for us to admit than we'd, we'd like to say. Genuine faith requires a real surrender. It requires a surrender. Uh, let me illustrate this. Maybe you have seen um, maybe a, a team of sled dogs or a, a group of dogs sort of in a pack and establishing a bit of a pecking order. And oftentimes two dogs who are sort of competing for top spot will get engaged and they usually stay out at it until either somebody separates them or one of them is able to establish dominance over the other. And oftentimes the way that will look is one will get the other on the ground on its back and will get its mouth around the other dog's throat. And the dog in the, in the lower posture will eventually, if they're smart and uh, realize things, surrender. And you'll even see them relax and put their head back and expose their throat. And it's a way of saying, uncle, <laughs> I give. Uh, you are, it's just the creature's way really of, of, of expressing submission and power to the alpha over them. It is, the, it, is the, it is the way one says, you have supremacy over me, I submit to you. And that is the posture that all of mankind needs to come to in relationship to God. We must submit. We must surrender. We must expose the throat and say, you are God most high, and I am not. And I think most of us fight against this. In fact, I think when you talk to many people about their theology, as you listen to them over time, you realize that a lot of people simply want to manage God or manipulate God or command him or utilize him or use him as a commodity from which to draw upon rather than to see him as the in eternal, infinite, sovereign, holy, and supreme God of all. There's no one like him. There's no one higher than him. These are some of the ingredients of his sovereignty here. And so the reality is this, that you and I are privileged to be a part of God's life. But the way it's often spun is, I want to have a little God in my life. Maybe even a little more of God in my life. But few people are willing to surrender. The right sentiment is, I need to know God as he is. And worship him for all that he is. And live for his glory. That is the reason for which I was created. And that will be my eternal vocation. And that is a posture of complete surrender. You think of the old hymn that we sing. Holy, holy, holy. When we sing it, we are not just declaring the absence of impurity from God. We're not just singing pure, pure, pure. Innocent, innocent, innocent. Clean, clean, clean. When we are affirming the holiness of God, we are affirming his majesty and the otherness of God. And it's repeated three times. And the reason it's repeated three times is because we are, in fact, imitating the seraphim who surround the throne and are singing that song presently. And we're joining into a reality that is already occurring. That's why it is in triplicate. Holy, holy, holy is not repeated just simply to fill in the measure of the music that is written for us. It's repeated to help us fill in our understanding of the enormity of God's greatness, his otherness, his sovereignty. And so we, along with King Nebuchadnezzar, have to 
have to surrender any low view of God and elevated view of ourselves and exchange it instead for a high view of God and a right view of ourselves that we were made by God for himself to serve and to honor him. And we have to acknowledge that he is the sovereign and self-sufficient I am. Our Lord Jesus said it this way, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. And this is the great paradox that we find in the scriptures, that we must die to ourselves to truly live as God intended. We must surrender in order to be restored. We must submit to him to be truly free. This is the paradox. And this is the transition, the transformation that we see occurring really in the life of Nebuchadnezzar here as he will finally reach the point where he sees Yahweh as God most high. And now he's going to tell us the story of how he got there. And so our second point this morning is this. Nebuchadnezzar dreamt again of God's sovereign power. Let's hear this together. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Boy, those are two, two loaded words. You know, you read those and you're like, you can just hear the music playing in some, you know, like old radio drama of the organ comes in. You know, something's about to happen here. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me, so I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From, ev- from it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while I was lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound, be bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground and in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the, man, the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of people. Excuse me, sets them over the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men of my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is, is, is in you. I was referring to many references this week, and one of the books I picked up was my ESV study Bible, and in there was a... Um, a description given uh, in reference to God as the divine lumberjack. 
which was a new one for me. Of all of the attributes and descriptions I've seen given to the Lord, I've never heard him referred to as the divine lumberjack. Uh, but in this instance, in this dream, in fact, we might say that's what he is. Nebuchadnezzar is described as this majestic tree in his kingdom, all that's associated with him, providing for all the living creatures. But here God warns him that he will be cut down. And I think many would read this and say, well, this really makes God out to sound like a bully, to sound cruel, to sound like a bit of a tyrant. But bringing Nebuchadnezzar low is actually for his good. I think what we learn from this is that God does not want to destroy us. He wants rather to disillusion us. If we are under an illusion, it is good to be disillusioned, right? It is good for untruths to be pulled away, stripped away, and for the truth to be shown for what it is. And so God is not just trying to lay waste to Nebuchadnezzar's life or our life or bring us low because he's cruel or inconsiderate, but because he is God most high and he is rightfully for himself. And the right posture of his creatures is to also declare his goodness and his glory. And if we are in our own way, God will get us out of our own way. And the right posture for his creatures is in awe and reverence of him. For whatever reason, this passage in Ecclesiastes came to mind this week as I was studying, and I haven't been able to let go of it. It doesn't even seem terribly fitting in my message, but I trust that God is sovereign over what comes to mind in my study here too. But it says this, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Are we not shown the contrast between God most high and his creatures? Do we not, do we not see it for what it is? So the one who goes through life in self-congratulatory praise, thinking themselves a self-made man or a self-made woman who doesn't really need God is under a great delusion. And it is the kindness of God to disillusion one even if it's through pain or trial or loss. And I think the dream that is given here really reveals to us the chief obstacle to genuine faith, not only for King Nebuchadnezzar, but for all mankind, and it is human pride. And that's at the center. And of all people on earth, we would say that maybe King Nebuchadnezzar had a right or reason, or at least it was understandable, why he might be himself prideful. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar ruled over Babylon at the height of its power. And I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the city this morning so you might consider the position that he's in. Uh, there are some, in fact, there are some surviving ancient inscriptions. Uh, some of them are located in the British Museum. I've had a chance to look at some of them. Uh, and they speak of Nebuchadnezzar's pride, or they rather put it on display as you can see what he has had inscribed in in certain stones and things. But we don't need to visit the museum or see the artifact because we can look at the scriptures and see it on display in verse 30, right? Is this not the great Babylon I have built by my power and for my majesty? Right? You hear those words and I just, you want to take a step back because you don't want to get singed by the lightning that's coming, right? But Babylon was great. There's no two ways about it. At the time, it was the largest city on earth. It was home to the Hanging Gardens, which the ancient Greeks considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world. 
The historian Herodotus, when he visited the city 100 years after Nebuchadnezzar, was overwhelmed by its glory. That's what he penned. Alexander the Great planned to make it his home, his capital and the headquarters for his vast empire. The city was rectangular in shape, surrounded by a deep moat and an intricate system of double walls, no less than three sets of double walls. The interior most of those walls was 21 feet thick. And it was reinforced with defensive towers every 60 feet. Every 60 feet. There'd be a couple in this room. Uh, Conservative estimates put the height of the walls at 40 feet tall. The whole thing was surrounded by a very deep moat. Outside it, there was a seven-level ziggurat. There was a massive bridge that spanned the Euphrates, which came right through town. The city had 53 temples. Nebuchadnezzar had at least three palaces, and most of the bricks that are taken out of the archaeological digs and excavations of this place actually bear the name of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. He stamped his name in each of these pieces assembling the city. And we could go on and on and on, but the point is made, Babylon was pretty great. And Nebuchadnezzar, pretty full of himself. Uh, It brought to mind for me the words from Henry Nouwen in his book, In the Name of Jesus, where he writes of himself confessionally, my own success was putting my soul in danger. And so was Nebuchadnezzar's, and so was ours. Which is our third point this morning here. Our story reveals the chief obstacle to faith for all of us. And it is, as you'll see again, pride. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. I need to stop there just to comment. Doesn't that surprise you a bit? Daniel was troubled. Daniel was troubled that the king was in danger here. I think that's kind of fascinating and a little bit startling here because I would imagine Daniel saying, hey, this is the guy who sacked my city and destroyed the temple and took out the artifacts and exiled me and brought me here where I didn't want to be and fed me food I didn't want to eat and named me a name I don't really like. Tried to throw my buddies into a furnace. I mean, we could go on and on, right? And one, one level we might say, why doesn't you know, Daniel throw up a fist pump here? Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar's going down. This is good. Our God reigns. Let's see it right now. But he's grieved, actually, so it's a little surprising to me. Verse 20, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation. Your majesty, and this is the decree of the Most High, has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge, here's the key, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. 
The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now here's where it gets fascinating to me. Verse 29. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from your people. You will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms uh, on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what he had said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven and his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. How descriptive. And the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. And my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What a great... I kept looking at this all week. Where can I cut to read, get, get through this a little quicker? What do you cut? It's God's word. Let's hear it read. So we see that King Nebuchadnezzar's real spiritual faux pas here isn't his clumsy language in reference to the spirit of the gods being in Daniel or with Daniel. His real faux pas is his prevailing heart of pride. His self-congratulatory posture. It's even told to us in the next chapter in Daniel 5.20. We're told to us that that was specifically the reason why. And so we see pride is Nebuchadnezzar's sin. And, and just how condemning is the passage here that gives us King Nebuchadnezzar's thoughts, right? It's not just look what all that I have made. Is not this great Babylon I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? That next line has been haunting me all week, even as the words were on his lips, Right? All that has been getting me all week. And I would just tell you, confessionally, I'm prone to such thoughts. Are you? I am. Uh, Amy laughs at me a lot because, you know, there, there are, there's things that I, I obsess about some funny things because I, I can't always have what I wish and will for all of you. And when things aren't going as I might hope they might in the congregation of people who have their own will, I can obsess at home because my grass will do what I help it to do. You know what I mean? The yard is a manageable thing. You all are unmanageable. (laughs) And so I'll be walking around outside and Amy, you know, I'll come in and 
what are you doing out there? And I'll say something like, just surveying my kingdom, you know. <laughs> this, this is what I feel like I can manage. Um, I would also tell you that there have been many times in my own life where I felt like a specific discipline or a correction or a hard thing came my way. And I can almost imagine back to a time before it where I made a boast. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I can almost correlate the one to the other. I can remember making a boast about, oh, such and such would never happen. And it's almost as though God says, did you say that out loud? You know, While the words were on your lips, Eric, I mean, that has just been on my mind as I've been thinking about this. It is more often than not that it is our own success or our sense of it that puts our own soul in danger. Pride is the original sin of mankind. It's not just Nebuchadnezzar's sin. It is the original sin. You know the story of Adam and Eve. In chapter 3, verse 5, the lie comes. You will not surely die, but you will be like God. Oh, like God. That sounds very nice. And so the story went. We learn that pride is the root of all sin. C.S. Lewis has written about pride and humility in maybe some of the, the most clear ways that I have read and wanted to share a couple of thoughts with you. He says this, Pride has been called the utmost evil. This is taken from mere Christianity. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. As long, this is also C.S. Lewis, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And yet, restoration is found for Nebuchadnezzar here in verse 34 because he, what, lifts his eyes to heaven. This upward gaze we are meant to see is the act of surrender and acknowledgement that Almighty God had desired for him. And surprisingly, what we find here, this might catch you off guard, but the antidote to pride is actually not the pursuit of humility. Humility is, in fact, a difficult virtue to pursue. Uh, I would say this. As soon as one understands that they have attained humility, it has evaporated from them instantly, right? How do you pursue humility and know you got it? And so it is elusive. It's like trying to grab a cloud or arrive at a mirage. You just don't get there. You know what I mean? It doesn't happen. And so humility is a virtue, I think, which can't be achieved by pursuing it directly. It is realized indirectly. Tim Keller has written about this in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He's reflecting on Lewis's writing, but this is what he says. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility. At the very end of his chapter on pride, uh, if, it were, if you were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us that they were a nobody. Because a person who keeps saying there are nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel, humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. 
Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom, and this is a great phrase, the freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. Humility is not found by self-deprecation or even the pursuit of it. Humility is found by lifting our eyes heavenward and seeing the glory of our God who is there. If we aim at humility, we'll end up at pride. Aim at knowing God, understanding God, Basking in the revelation of God, declaring the glory of God, loving him and loving those that he loves, and honest humility will be a natural byproduct. This morning we are going to come to the Lord's table and we are going to reflect again, this is our practice, on our Savior, who was himself humble, not because he was self-deprecating or calling himself of no worth, but because his principal aim and gaze was heavenward, to the will of his father and earthward to serve mankind's true need. We're going to bask in that this morning and may it be a corrective for our own heart's pride. Would you pray with me? Father, we are shown ourselves as we look at Nebuchadnezzar. As we look at humankind, we see our true nature on display and we do not like it. So we praise you yet again that you have sent a savior to rescue us from ourselves from our own selfish will, for our own sin-steeped ways. Lord, we know salvation is found in no other name than Jesus. How absurd if it could be found in other ways, and yet you would give him to die. So we turn our hearts to you, Lord, and we thank you for your gift, the gift of your Son, who took on our sin, allowing it to be killed in him, transferring us to us his goodness, his righteousness, his holiness, taking our guilt, our sin, and our shame, and destroying it. May we see the humility that we need to have in Christ. May we reflect upon it deeply, and may it infiltrate our hearts. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Some have been